the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. What is the result when we keep looking back? And then we're joined by Mike Donahue to talk about his book, Grace in the Gray. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, friends, welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us on this Thursday afternoon. Aubrey, it's Thursday. How are you doing today? It's Thursday. It's Thor's Day, as I like to say, because I'm a fan of Thor and a little bit of a nerd. I'm great. How about you, Brian? <laughs> you just went, you went sideways that with that one right there. I'm How about good. that answer? I'm doing great. Spring feels like it is here. Summer's around the corner. Finally threw all the birthdays in my house, so I don't have to oh, worry about those survived. anymore. you survived. You survived. Did you? well this year. Yeah. Did you end up giving Carrie the, I know you kind of mutually decided on a gift. Did she get what she wanted? She and did. And was happy? She did, and we took her out a couple days on her birthday, which was on Monday. Fun. We took her out for, you know, my the way to my wife's heart is through pizza. And so. Oh, that's right. That's right. Good pizza. We went out to Lou Malnati's, and uh, she enjoyed it very much. She got herself a new phone. That's what she wanted. Ooh, nice. So, you know, you make the monthly installment. So I was like, this is your birthday gift, right? She's like, yes, yes, absolutely. So I got a lawnmower. She got a phone, nothing else. Wow, well, good job. You guys did well on your birthday this guess. year. That's impressive. It's well something nice done. to being like, that's what I want. There is something nice about that. And I feel good that I got it and I don't need anything else. And, and I didn't yeah. have to go looking for stuff. For... You both got such practical things a phone, a lawnmower. The phone feels more fun than the lawnmower, but I do love mowing the lawn and we needed one. Yeah, so. yeah. Such is like the gifts that keep on giving. All right, it's end of school time. Wow. And it is so people are thinking, okay, graduation or things moving on. With that in mind, Christianity Today, they ran just an interesting article the other day. Parents let go of graduation nostalgia. The end of school invites retrospection, but we have something better to look forward to. So let me just start there. Like we do it even a lot on this show. Oh, when our kids were little. <laughs> oh, this. We're very nostalgic. What is healthy people. retrospection? And where does it become unhealthy? I think it's such an important question because nostalgia is very powerful. I think when it becomes unhealthy, I suppose is, I don't know exactly when this line becomes tangible, but there is that line when you stop being in the present moment and stop looking forward to the future and you just get stuck in the past. And that can not necessarily feel negative. Like can be like, no, I long for what used to be or I miss the good old days. I, you know, we may not speak like that, but like, I, oh, I love when my kids were younger. Yeah, I wish I, we could go back in time and do that. And in some senses, I think when it kind of gets negative is when it becomes a form of anxiety where you're wishing you could control mm-hmm. and change an outcome. And time cannot be changed, period. Like time is out of our control. So you can't go back as much as you can't like out pace the future either so yeah something about you know when you move from looking at cute pictures with your family and remembering how cute and precious they were and that moves from like 
controlling you or not just not being able to move forward and embrace yeah. the, the positive. And I think especially when it comes to your kids, looking forward does mean releasing them. And right. as parents, that's challenging. Is, I'm not going to lie. It's hard. As one who's gone through the first year of college with my oldest this year, there is something to be said about constantly looking back to, quote, unquote, the good old days when, oh, when you were little and mm. we used to play and this, that. Is it does a couple things. I think one, it tries to keep the control. It tries to keep like that's true. But here's the other thing. I think in I don't know that we mean to do this, but I think it sends a message to our kids uh, or to our spouse. Like if we say to our spouse, "Oh, do you remember those first couple years of marriage? I miss those so much." All of those things. I think it sends this message. I liked you more when. Oh, interesting. Uh, you were it was my favorite time. Like, what kid wants to hear my favorite time with you was when, when you were, you were five, five, right? Right. And now they're like fifteen, and they're like, "Thank you." And I don't think any of us would purposefully do that, but it does send that message, and I think it also sends. They mentioned this in the article, a fundamental untruth, and that is this, that the best of our lives lie behind us. Mm. This is Bruce Springsteen's glory days, right? Yeah, like, right. Uh, you mentioned the other day Uncle Rico from uh, <laughs> from Napoleon Dynamite. Yeah. It could be nostalgia can turn to, man, the life was better when mm. life. Was, and A, that's a really bad message to send to your kids. Yeah. But that's also a really hard way to live right now. I think the people who do the most good are like. All right, I'm going to embrace what's happening right now in my life. It's interesting. I I was reading somewhere, and I cannot remember the author, so forgive me for quoting someone. I don't know who said it, but it was something like spiritual growth or spiritual formation is simply accepting reality. Hmm. And there's something about that. Like, I mean, the, the depth behind that is that, yeah, you're not stuck in the past. You're not afraid of the future, but you are living in the present moment as a gift. And when you look to the future, like the Proverbs 31 woman, you have no fear because you trust like God is providing. You've been industrious. You've done what you needed to do. And trusting that there's goodness and redemption and restoration in the future for you. Like I think about the interview we had earlier this week with um, the Curtis Chang, the author of the book about anxiety. We keep going back to that because something he said in our interview struck with me, stuck with me that sometimes our, our anxiety comes from fear of the future, really fear of loss. Hmm. But when our future is in God, we trust that on the other side of our anxiety, our loss, et cetera, the future for us is renewal it's restoration it's redemption and so there's really nothing to fear ultimately yeah yeah let's also say this very practically uh when i think longingly to when my kids were little i scrub all of the really difficult sleepless nights frustrations i mean tears anger uh all of that i scrub all that away even like i mean i do i miss them when they were little and precious but i mean i can remember specifically as a woman who felt called to leadership and creative expression and other things i was drowning in those seasons like kevin and i jokingly and lovingly call those years the prison years Like, (laughs) like you know and we're being sarcastic when we do that but i do think you're right you look back with rose colored glasses as they say yep yep uh her name is jennifer grant the author of this article she closes it this way 
As people of faith, we know that the ephemerality of our lives is not a reason to despair, but instead reflects the very order of things. Mm. We push on through each day, appreciating the resilience and character that hope uh, that God is growing in us and looking toward the future with hope. I love that. That's the important phrase at the end, with hope. Mm. Like, don't you think on some level, Aubrey, you need to believe that the future is is better than the past. Uh, you, like, it's going to be better. Absolutely. I think that in one no sense... No matter how good the past was. Right. I feel like that's what keeps you going, right? Is mm-hmm. knowing that... Knowing, yeah, even if the past was fantastic, even if you do look back on those as your glory days or the good years, to have a hope that the future is going to be better, right? And that doesn't necessarily... Well, we know. It doesn't mean pain-free. It doesn't mean without suffering. It doesn't mean without hardship. It, none of those things are true, but our ultimate future when we meet jesus face to face we know will be better and i also do think we can trust that like the boundary lines for us will fall in pleasant places as we continue walking with the lord and see his blessings and look for goodness and practice gratefulness like all of those good spiritual disciplines will help us move forward to the future with hope and expectation Mm -hmm. that it will be good. Yep, yep. And so as Christians, I think we look towards the future with hope. And so look back. We do this in our house. We'll connect the computer to the TV, and the kids will sit around, and we'll look at old pictures and just laugh. That's so fun. Those are all good. It's when it turns to, oh, I wish we were still there. Yeah. I wish. I wish it was still like that, that I think it starts to turn a little dangerous. Coming up next... Uh, the former lead singer of the group 10th Avenue North. I went through a 10th Avenue North stage, yeah, I think, right did. out of college. Yeah, you did. Of course you did. Of course I did. Uh, he's got a book out called Grace in the Gray. His name is Mike Donahue. He's going to join us next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Aubrey and I are thrilled to be joined by the author of Grace in the Gray. He's a singer, songwriter, podcast host, and former lead singer of the band 10th Avenue North. His name is Mike Donahue. Mike, how you doing today? I'm doing just lovely. Thanks for asking. It's a great to have you with us, man. Hey, tell us about the book. Tell us about Grace in the Gray. How did it come about, uh, and what surprised you as you wrote this book? You know, when you make a living uh, singing and thousands of different kinds of churches, you quickly are thrown into the midst of debate on Mm. various topics. Wow, yeah. Strangely, um, I don't know if Christians could be uh, classified as very gracious in the way they debate Mm. all the time, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which ought to be our mark, right? Like that our speech would be seasoned with grace is the way we communicate. Um, but uh, I wrote it because I wanted to try to help Christians stop freaking out on each other. <laughs> <laughs> that feels like a prophetic word for such a time as this. Um, Indeed. I, uh, yes. Thank you. I, well, I had heard somewhere, Mike, that this wasn't the book you thought you were going to write. Can you talk about that story at all? Yeah, I I love just debating different topics. And I thought that this book was going to be a collection of the most controversial topics that we tend to debate. And I'd present both sides and then illuminate the audience with my take. <laughs> obviously, usher in a new world peace and order. <laughs> and, um, and quickly realize, oh, people have already done that. And they've done a much better job than I could ever hope to. Mm. But as I began to debate some people online, the thing that kept coming back to me was people said, you know, I don't even agree with your position. But I'm really convicted by the way you address people who disagree with you. Wow. Mm. I said, maybe the book there. 
Yeah, yeah. So why is this a big deal? So why does it matter how we debate? Because a lot of people, especially online, it's like, I just got to win. I got to get my point out there. I got to do this. But particularly for Christians, why is this so important? Yeah, well, I can tell you why. We're told that Jesus is a stumbling block of Mm. offense. And sadly, a lot of us think our job is to be a stumbling block on the way to the stumbling block. (laughs) And I, I would say we really value truth. And we would even say the most loving thing we can do is tell people the truth. However, the way we speak that truth, I would argue, is just as important. And that's what the Apostle Paul tells Timothy. He says, correct your opponents. We love that piece of advice. Mm-hmm. We're ready to do that. But then he adds this caveat. He says, with all gentleness. Mm. And I said, surely that's not what he meant. You know, <laughs> Surely yeah. he didn't say your posture is as important as your position. And so I looked up the Greek for with all gentleness, and it turns out it's translated with all gentleness. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, then he, and then he says this really provocative thing. He says, perhaps God will grant them repentance. Mm. leading to the truth. Mm. And I think if we're honest, most of us debate in a way that we think it's up to us. Yeah, totally. Not up to God to change people's minds. Mm. Mm. Um, Mike, you're also the husband and father of four young daughters, which is, I have three sons, so I'm a little bit envious. I'm not going to lie. I would like one of those daughters to come live with me. (laughs) But talk to us about, especially raising daughters, how have you been able to cultivate spaces of listening and grace with them? Well, you know, if you have four daughters, you're going to be disagreed with. <laughs> and uh, I, I like the joke, having four daughters in my house, it's it's beautiful. Just someone's always crying, and sometimes my girls are crying too. <laughs> Amen and, to that. I would say the way that we cultivate it is curiosity and kindness, mm. you know? So clarifying questions, trying to get to the heart of the thing. And a lot of times I think, you know, when I tell people I have four daughters, everyone goes, oh, wait till they're teenagers. (laughs) And I think as my oldest is now a teenager, I said, I think most parents have a hard time because they're just too easily offended by their Mm -hmm, kids. And they take what their kids say personally. And you go, your your kids are exploring the boundaries, you know, Mm. and your job is to be like a steady guardrail. So that when they crash, they don't go off the side of the cliff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the the less offended I am by the things my daughters say to them, the more I'm able to stay present with them and offer kindness even when they're flailing. Mm, That's great. That's so good. uh, You talk about, and I love that you talk about this because I think it's such an important kind of snapshot into Jesus's disciples. You talk about Matthew and Simon the Zealot, both walking alongside Jesus for three years. Help people understand just why that's such a big deal and why what we can learn about that from the, the fact that Jesus chose Matthew and Simon the Zealot. Yeah, I think it's important to remember that all the disciples thought Jesus was coming to be a political savior. Yeah. That's who they imagined he was going to be. That's why Peter is still cutting people's ears off right before Jesus goes to the cross. You know, they wanted him to overthrow Rome. And I would say, sadly, a lot of us still think that that's what Jesus came to do for us Mm -hmm. in America. And 
I think it's very provocative that Jesus never tells them to overthrow Rome. In fact, he says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. And then he enforces this point by having Matthew, the tax collector in his posse, who Simon the Zealot, who was also in his posse, would have been trying to kill people like Matthew. Because in Simon's eyes, Matthew is the ultimate traitor. And for Jesus to say, hey, whatever your political affiliation, I want you to look higher than that and be a part of a kingdom. Mm. And I think that's a I think that's a convicting word for us as we demonize people on other sides of political lines. That's right. Mike, when we started chatting, one of the things you talked about was touring, obviously, as a singer, songwriter, songwriter and kind of being in different churches uh, realizing, oh, not everyone agrees with all the things. If people feel strongly about things, you're obviously uh, formerly part of the CCM band 10th Avenue North. Talk to us just about that. Like, how did music kind of shape you to be a writer specifically on this topic? Yes. Well, anyone who's tried to co-write a song will understand <laughs> the sting of disagreement. And the hardest part about songwriting is you can't even say there's an objective truth as to what's better. You know, like people are going to like different bands, even if you think it's horrible music. And you can't objectively say that music is terrible, you know, because people go, well, I like it. So you're, you're constantly dealing in the gray space. And as you write songs, you're constantly going, does the melody match the lyric? Hmm. Which is another way of saying, is the way I'm saying something, is it matching what I'm saying? That's right. And so as a songwriter, I think I'm just a a little bit more um, used to inspecting my ideas through that lens. Mm -hmm. And I'd say as a songwriter, you're used to being disagreed with. You're like, hey, do you like this part of my soul? Mm. No, I hate that part. You're like, oh, okay. (laughs) And you're having to constantly be vulnerable and just throw yourself out there. That's great. That's great. Mike, uh, the book is Grace in the Gray, but you do lots of things. Where can people connect with you? Social media, maybe your podcast. Where can people connect with you? Oh, yeah. You can go to MikeDonahy.com. You can go on the Instagrams. Um, <laughs> 10th Avenue North still technically exists. So uh, I, I guess I'm the former and the current singer of 10th Avenue North. Nice. <laughs> uh, so just, you know, just type in some things into the Googles and you'll find it. They'll find it. Mike <laughs> Donahue, he, he is the author of Grace in the Gray, A Guide to Productive Disagreement. Such an important mm-hmm. word and topic in our day today. Mike, great to meet you, man. Thanks for spending some time with us today. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Aubrey. Absolutely. You as well. You're listening to The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Sometimes articles, sometimes things from our own lives, Aubrey. Sometimes I just read a tweet that makes me go, huh, okay. This is from somebody named Bobby Harrington. I used to listen to him. He would always be on like the, he'd be doing the breakouts at Exponential, right? Never a main stage guy, but a breakout guy. Love that. Discipleship.org and those types of things. Also a pastor. So he's writing about the church. I want to know what you think about what he says here. Okay, let's hear it. You cannot build a church on consumers. They'll desert you at a moment's notice because they have no commitments beyond meeting their own needs. Jesus can take 12 disciples and build a movement that changes the world. He could Mm. never have done that with consumers. Wow. So there's a lot to unpack here. What's a consumer? Uh, How do you build a church 
on people who are committed and not yeah. consumers. Yeah. But take this as a whole. You can't build a church yeah. on consumers because a lot of people have built really big churches on consumers. They really have. Kevin and I used to say this. Our leadership used to say this a lot. I think it's been a while since we have, but we we wanted people to be contributors to the kingdom, not consumers of church, right, mm. at, at Renewal. And I hear I hear this and I'm like, yeah, you can't build a church on consumers. We've all seen that. We all saw that, especially kind of in the pandemic with the great church relocation, mm-hmm. like everyone who wasn't happy with their church left. And I think in the wake of that is they left the people they could have influenced and they could have mentored. They could have helped raise up. And that that feels sad to me. I think I'm still grieving it. And yet I, it begs me to question as a church leader, well, is that my fault? Like, have I, I, I haven't made disciples who are committed to mm-hmm. a world movement. Like I, I've been a part of creating a consumer uh, mentality or experience at my church if that's happened so easily. So it, I think it begs the question of leadership, like where did we go wrong and how do we need to get better at this? Yes. But then I think the question you also asked, Brian, is, there are lots of people that build gigantic Huge. churches on consumer, gigantic and influential and people are growing and thriving and they love their church. So are they, I mean, let's just talk about large attractional churches. Mm-hmm. Are those not movements that change the world? Are, are or are those movements that are changing the world? I don't know. I think, and are I think they necessarily built on consumerism? Like, I think this sounds really good on Twitter. I break it all down looking at church models around the world. I just wonder if it plays out. I think he's absolutely right. Jesus could not have built the world. I mean, Jesus could build the church on whatever sure, he wants. Sure, sure, sure. Sure. They, the disciples were not consumers. I mean, they were actively moving the mission of God, the gospel message of Jesus, the kingdom of God. It's tough to build a consumer church and tell the followers you're going to die. Exactly. Exactly. So yes, 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 he's right. But I do think, yeah, are the attractional churches that we're quick to call consumers, maybe they're not. Like Mm. maybe they're more involved and active than we think. And that's why it works. Oh, absolutely. I think that that's fair. Uh, I think you can build a really big church on consumers and it will fall apart really quickly. Mm. Consumer churches... And I think we need to define them as those churches in which your main goal is to meet whatever anybody wants, right? Yeah. Is to go, what yeah. What do they want? They want this, we're going to offer this. They want that, we're going to offer that. As opposed to, we're on mission together, what is God calling us to? Those types of questions. Yeah. Here's the deal. As long as people are getting what they want, they're hearing what they want, the songs are what they want, you will grow that church. Mm-hmm. That one's going to grow faster than mm-hmm. the other types of churches. It is. But when hard times come, Mm. that church is going to fall apart faster than the others. And that's what I think we've seen in some big and small churches. Yeah. When you base it on, hey, what's the songs that you want? What's the type of preaching that you want? What's Mm -hmm. the programming that you want? Mm -hmm. And it's always just what do I want? Well, once a decision is made contrary to what you want or once church is no longer fun. Right. On to the next one, yeah. find a church that's offering me what I want. This doesn't mean that doesn't, these don't go through our minds, right? Like I should be asking the question, what do families with kids need in our church? Right. Like exactly. we should be what asking do marriages need at our right. church? What do single people need at our church? What do new disciples versus mature disciples need at our church? Like I, we have to ask those questions. I think I've told you we do that for helpful list often as a staff, which is like, what's working? 
what's missing, what's wrong, what's confused. And mm. then we try to evaluate from there. In one sense, that's, that is looking at the felt needs of the community because you don't want to be a church that's just like doing opposite of what people need. That's not helpful either. I, I've said before, like the, the opposite of an attractional church is a repulsive church and nobody wants that, right? right? Um, and yet when you're, I, I guess the difference is just entertaining, or just only uh, meeting the like changing whims of the popularity vote. Mm-hmm. That's when you are creating consumers. I don't. I don't know. This is a tricky conversation for me because sometimes I think we can put churches in an easy box. I agree. And we can put church people in an easy box, and we can go. That's what's wrong. That model's wrong. That's the. And I. I often find in actual real life experience. God is bigger than that. Expressions of the church are way more nuanced than you think they are. And God works in teeny tiny churches and God works in these massive churches. God works in churches where they're bringing Star Wars characters in and doing like a whole lightsaber (laughs) themed service. And God works in churches where they're reading through Leviticus for the year. So I I don't know. I Yes, I actually think philosophically i agree wholeheartedly mm-hmm. with bobby harrington on this you cannot build a church on consumers they'll desert you at a moment's notice and we don't want to disciple people into consumerism especially in the american church we want to disciple people into commitment and building a movement etc and yet also it doesn't come down to model it comes down to the holy spirit the expression of the church in your community and what's god doing and sometimes you just can't put you can't put borders around that always. Right. How would I know? Let's pretend we're not pastors. How would I know if I'm a consumer? If Because I don't think anyone looks at church and goes, yeah. I choose to be a consumer and I'm going to be flippant about church. Yeah, mm-hmm. Church must give me what I want. I mm-hmm. would think it happens much more slowly than that. So any thoughts come to mind about how people can go, yeah, I'm pretty much just consuming church. I think... I, I even as I'm about to say it, I like hear the other side of it. So let me speak out of both sides of my mouth. I think some clues might be you're leaving church service in your car and you're evaluating the everything, though, the songs, the sermon, the whatever based on I did or didn't like it. Mm. Not what did God teach me? Where did God show up? Where was I challenged? Ooh, I didn't. Ooh, I pushed back against that. What was going on in my soul there? Ooh, I didn't like that. What's going But more like it. I did or didn't like it. It fit or didn't fit me like that kind of thing. I think that kind of speech begins to show you that you're there to consume and like it's about you rather than who did I encourage today when I was at church? Who did I have a good conversation with? Mm -hmm. Where might be calling me? Where did the sermon meet me? And where did I push back? Where did the music hit me? And why didn't that? What's going on? Like, do you know what I mean? Like there's a way to do critique that isn't just about you, but is about like what's God doing in in that space, in that That's moment. Right. That's and, right. and then I think a question like, are you slowly stepping away from small group? Are you slowly stepping away from Bible study? Are you slowly stepping away from giving? Are you all those things are sort of signs like I'm letting go. Why am I letting go? Is it because they're no longer the church I quote unquote like or is something else going on? That's I don't know. Right. What do you think, Brian? Uh, I think you nailed it. I think you have to be able to look in the mirror and go, uh, I, I think a great answer is if this church starts losing a little bit of momentum, if it starts, so not losing its orthodoxy yeah, or its theology yeah. or this, but just the momentum. Mm-hmm. If it's not the cool church anymore, yeah. if it doesn't have everything it had before, yeah. am I, is my first thought to move on. 
I think that would be a, a big flag. Red flag, at least a yellow flag, that you've got the wrong perspective of church. Yeah. Uh, Yes. I'd say ask yourself that question before it comes. And I think ask yourself, what does that say about me? All Mm -hmm. right. Coming up next, we want marriages to do really well. And so uh, there was an article the other day, a perspective, Aubrey, about cohabitation. Does it help uh, long term with marriage? And they used a very popular singer, Taylor Swift. Oh, to talk about this, we're going to do this next year on The Common Good. AIM 1160, hope for your life. Aubrey, I want to tackle a topic we've tackled uh, before, and that's uh, people living together before marriage. Yeah. What is the result? Over uh, Of all places, Yahoo News was talking about Interesting. this. Interesting. And they were talking about it in the sense of Taylor Swift and how do you say his name? Joe Alwyn? Joe Alwyn. It, Joe he's, Al- I, I think he's... British, so it's probably like, Joe Owen. <laughs> I don't think we have to say it as British, though. Uh, they just broke up after six years of marriage. No, not of marriage. dating. Yes. So sad. So it, this will be like three albums for her, because she is notorious yes. for writing songs about her breakups yes. and this and that. But it got, of all places, Yahoo News talking about cohabitation. And listen to these two. Let me just read these two, and you tell me if you're surprised okay. by this. Okay. The Swift and Alwyn saga follows a script that the majority of today's adults, including many Christians, I think it's interesting that they've talked about Christians. They even said that, yeah. That they follow, meet, date, fall in love, and sort of drift into living together as the, quote, next step in your romance without clear intentions to marry. In fact, an estimated 70% of couples today will cohabitate before tying the knot. Pew Research found that 58% of white evangelicals believe that cohabitation is, quote, morally acceptable if a couple plans to marry. A 2012 general social survey found that 41% of Christians believe living together is acceptable even without marriage plans. So let's pause there. We're going to get to more statistics and other things. That is interesting. This like date, meet, date. Fall in love, yeah. kind of fall into living together uh-huh. without any real plans of marriage. I mean, Taylor Swift and Joe Alwyn, as far as anyone else, were never engaged. Right. There was never a marriage right. coming. Uh, we think famously of Oprah and what was the guy's name? Stead- Stedman. Stedman. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what do we think about this? Yeah, it's funny. I've I've watched some recent like movies or TV shows that have a romantic couples kind of like the main story plot line. And It'll end with like, I will not marry you, but let's move in together. <laughs> and it's like, oh, it's so romantic. They, they're not going to get married because they've decided they're cynical about marriage, but they're going to live together. How beautiful. Let's celebrate that. And I'm always like, weak. And I turn it off. Like, I get so angry because I want to see, I want to see the commitment. Yeah. I want to see the marriage. I want to see people say, we are going to sacrifice for one another and we're going to be in this thing no matter what. I... I do think this sort of drifting together into living together or living together as the like, oh, they're really committed because they're living together to me is just a watered down commitment. Just right. get married, like get married and decide you're going to be together forever or keep figuring it out, or but keep not together, out. living yeah. together. Yeah. So we've stated quotes like this before, but uh, one recent study 
Because people live together, they say here, because they think that will help them once they're married. Right. One recent study found that 54% of first-time cohabitating couples saw their relationship end in a breakup within six years of moving in together, whereas only one-third who had tied the knot in the same time frame broke up. Oh, interesting. So those are your statistics. Uh, All right, really personal question. You and Kevin got married quickly. Yeah. But we're just 20, 25 years ago of when we were engaged Mm -hmm. to our spouses and married or whatever. Mm -hmm. Did you guys even consider moving in together? Never, 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 never. So walk through that because I'm amazed how many Christians now do do this. Yeah. In their 20s. Like, I'm not even talking like people who are in their, you know, I'm talking like right out of college, this and that. Yeah. So what was the process for you and Kevin to go from dating to marry? And I will say, too, and I this is okay for me to say because she's never been private about it. But my sister, who's just five years younger than me, lived with um, a very serious boyfriend and then they broke up. And then she's married now, but she and her current husband lived together Mm -hmm. for a while before. So we're five years and that's how different it was. For Kevin and I, one, our parents would never in a million years have been okay with it, and we would never have gone against our parents. So part of it is just like they just, I I think both of our parents drilled into us, if you live together, you will get divorced. Mm -hmm. Like, And so you live together when you are married. Mm -hmm. And I would say the other part of it, and this is going to sound old school, and I know people get cringy about this, but I'm just going to be very honest. Kevin and I were committed to wait to wait to consummate our marriage mm-hmm. until we were actually married. Yep. And we knew if we would have That's lived together. It's not happening when you live together. <laughs> if you live together, it's not happening. Two right. people who are in love and want each other are if you're living together, like it's off the table. And mm-hmm. that was a value for us. Like that was a value that we had both made that commitment to one another. We had made that commitment to the Lord. And again, I think we just had a more like collective understanding of what we were doing. We made a commitment to our families too. Mm -hmm. And so I think we just, it never in a million years would have occurred to us because I grew up feeling like and learning and believing that it would have ended in disaster. Mm -hmm. Like it just would not have been good and you would not have actually committed and you would have broken up. And so we just, I honestly, I'm going to say this and it's going to sound a little holier than now, but I actually mean it. We loved each other too much to do that. Mm. We dignified and honored one another too much. We esteemed each other too much to do that. Sometimes I feel like when a couple's willing to move in without that marriage commitment, they're not honoring one another. That's right. And I and again, this is goes back to where I'm both a traditionalist and a feminist, because this is gonna sound very traditionalist. I don't think it's the man honoring the woman ever if he says move in with me. I mm. think you say, Will you marry me? And then let's get the ball rolling. That's right. That's right. It's uh What about you and Carrie? Like would it have ever occurred to you to live together? No, I think we this is what I want to get at, is there was such a stigma within the church. Uh, <clears throat> that it it was still sc- twenty five. We got married twenty three years ago. It was still scandalous. It was scandalous. It really was. Yeah. And I don't think it's a good thing that that's, that that edge is gone. Yeah. Now you want to go? Why is it gone? You know, there's questions to be had sure. there. But did, did the church need to be so judgy about it? No, definitely not. But let's be honest. You're not living together and not having sex with each other. Right. Like especially right. as young twenty year olds, that uh, just kind of comes with it. And so. Uh, I think the statistics tell us, but more so, I think it's what you said, Aubrey. It's there is an honoring of one another that says there's a process mm-hmm. here, and the process comes with commitment. Yeah, 
uh, when we're dating, I have a certain level of commitment. We could break up tomorrow if we're just dating. Totally. When we're engaged, it's a le- it's a lot bigger deal, mm-hmm. like to break up. But you yeah. still can. You can. When you're married, you've said I've linked myself yeah. to you. Yeah. Uh, I'm making a covenant before God, and it is then that I will be. I will. I will live with you and we will start a life mm-hmm. together. That is the process that is not old fashioned. Like that's where we get this wrong here. Then there's people out there who are going, well, uh, this is, makes the most financial sense. Yeah. So what? Right. Get a roommate. Right. Live with your parents. Right. Whatever you got to do. Right. Or here's a thought, get married or get married or get yeah. married. And so, yeah, this is interesting that Yahoo is trying to say, hey, this is not a good idea. Yeah, Yahoo News of all places. You is got saying that. to be more careful. This, I feel sad for Taylor Swift and Joe, though. Like this is you she's know, she's already had supposedly so many, dating somebody else. I saw that. She has so many hot and heavy like uh, relationships that I thought this one was going to be the one that lasted. But yeah, I've heard rumors that she's dating Matt Healy. Maddie Healy, who's another musician. I don't know who he is, but yeah. It, just, it, it gives her fodder for new songs. Yeah, wow. It'll be a great album, whatever it is. Brian and I will be back again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian from I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.